if you open your scriptures to 1 John, I'm actually going to have you turn to the purpose statement of the entire letter, and that's 1 John 5, verse 13. Then we're going to back up to an overview, and then we're going to get into our text this morning. I also want to welcome our online audience. Uh, We are streaming this service, uh, and we're also having a children's program uh, at the same time synced with this uh, service. At the 9 a.m. service, it was basically uh, pretty raw and basic, uh, but a special group of people praising God together in song and in prayer and through the hearing and obeying of His Word. Uh, John is writing to believers, unlike his account of the Gospel where he's writing to unbelievers. He is writing to believers who had been shaken by false teachers. Okay, he says that in 1 John 2, verse 19. Anytime someone negatively departs from a church, there's all kinds of good reasons. People move away, people take another job position. But anytime somebody negatively departs from a church, it holds the potential to shake or cause instability among those who remain. That's what's happening in this letter. That's what John is speaking into. And what he does is he responds by building a doctrinal foundation and framework And then based upon that framework, issues these ethical implications or these moral imperatives. The purpose of his letter, look at 1 John 5.13, is this. I write these things to you who believe. He's writing to believers who believe in the name of the Son of God. And here's why. That you may know that you have eternal life. Because false teachers were undermining that confidence and that assurance. Here's the theme we are working with. Marks of authentic Christian faith and experience. Orthodoxy, which is straight or right teaching. And orthopraxy, which is straight or right living. Both of those go together. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 to 2-2, that was one of the first big sections that we covered John repeats the same pattern three times. And what he's doing by repeating this pattern is he is exposing the false claims of those who have crept into this church. He presents the false claim by this formula, if we say. So turn back to 1 John chapter 1. Because I want you to see how this all is seen together as we get to the section in our consideration this morning. Look at verse 6. If we say, he's going to do this three times. Here's the false claim. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk walk in darkness. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin. Right, that we're not sinners at all. That we have no need for a redeemer, a savior as you're telling us. So if we say that, look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned. So if we're trying to justify our sinful actions by saying it is not sin, these are all false claims. Secondly, what John does is he exposes each claim as false with a similar phrase. Go back to verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. Okay, we're not telling the truth. Look at verse 8. If we say that particular false claim, we deceive ourselves. Look at verse 10. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, God, who cannot lie because he says we have sinned. Okay, so do you see his argument? Do you see the progression of his argument? It's very logical. Third, then, what he does is he takes that false claim, 
says that it's a lie and he puts forth a truth claim or a counterclaim. Look at verse 7. If we walk in the light. Okay, look at verse 9. If we confess our sin. And then look at chapter 2, verse 1. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Then in the week after that, after we considered that text in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 11, what John does is in responding to the false claims that they were asserting, he moves to provide two tests. And it was Pastor Sean who worked us through this text, this text. The first test, if you look at verse 3, chapter 2, is the moral test of obedience. Let's, let me read that. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. So if somebody, if somebody truly knows Christ and they've experienced the new birth, then they will show that, they will prove that by a new walk. The second test is not just the moral test, but it's a relational test of love. And I believe sometimes in a broadly professing Christian world, this is the test that exposes us the most as counterfeits. Look at 1 John 2, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. But remember what it says. If you fail to love your brother, how does the love of God dwell in you? If we truly know Christ, if we've truly experienced the new birth, then we will love others with a new quality of care or love, and it will resemble whose love? As a matter of fact, John connects both of these tests, obedience and love, to the example of Jesus Christ in 1 John 2, verse 6. That's the proof. So when he's writing so that you believers may know that you know that you have eternal life, those are two tests, two of the first tests that he puts forward. Now we move into our text this morning. 1 John chapter 2 will begin in verse 12. And I want you to look at this. I want your eyes to take in sort of the whole passage. And in the first section, before it gets to the really common, do not love the world, where a lot of sermons start, okay, we're not starting there. We're going to go back to sort of what feels like a pause in his logical argument. But in this section, beginning in verse 12, John makes six statements to believers using family terms. This was a common technique of early Christians to address one another like this. Brothers and sisters is borrowed from the scriptures. He makes two statements to children, little children, two statements to fathers and two statements to young men. Following those six statements classified two, two and two, he then puts forward two spheres, that of the world and that of the church. Let's look at his six statements first. Each statement is introduced with the words, I am writing to you. Look at verse 12. That's how he begins. I am writing to you, little children. And he's going to put forward two things about children. And let me pause here to explain this. He's not writing to age groups. He's actually addressing phases or stages of spiritual maturity. Children in Christ and elders in Christ and those strong in Christ, neither babes in Christ, neither those who are mature, but those who are growing in their faith. So it's neither an age classification or a gender classification. You might feel like, well, why, why doesn't he address 
mothers or young women. Okay, they're all included in these commonly used family titles of the day. Little children, it's an interesting title. He says this twice. Jesus actually used this term children with his own disciples, probably in their late 20s, early 30s. He actually addresses them with this phrase because at that stage in his ministry, they were new believers. They were new followers of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, John 13, 33, Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. He was already preparing these men, these disciples for his departure, but he addresses them as little children. In John 21, this is after Jesus rose from the dead. Just as day was breaking, John records in John chapter 21, Jesus stood on the shore. This is, remember this, this is after his resurrection from the dead. He is making his appearances through these 40 days before he ascends to the Father. Peter had gone back fishing as a little child. They, he abandoned Jesus Christ when he was crucified. The disciples fled. That was a fulfillment of prophecy. And he went back to fishing. It says this, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, and he calls out a title. What would you expect him to say? Disciples? Fishermen? You know what he says? Children. Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Remember, he used this tactic before with these seasoned fishermen who knew the times and the seasons and the conditions of the waters and everything. I mean, you don't fish in the shallow with nets. You don't fish in the broad daylight. And now they don't even have to move the boat. They simply have to take the net from one side of the boat to the other. He's looking for his children to obey. Children. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. You ever get that picture in your mind? It's like there's the boat. If you could just look underneath the boat, right? Their net's hanging down here and there's this big stockpile of fish right here, like looking. All they have to do is throw the net on the other side. Who's holding them there? Okay, God is. And it says they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. And immediately their theological senses come back, and that disciple whom Jesus loved, who is that? What's his name? John. John's writing it. He loves to talk about himself in those terms. And by the way, the same one who wrote this letter we're considering. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. New believers... Children need to be assured of two simple truths. Matter of fact, you're going to see this in 1 John 2, verse 12. Look at the first truth they need to be reminded of. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, in all six statements, and we're going to get technical here, the verb that is used is a perfect, past perfect verb. It simply means this. It's a completed finished action with present consequences. Your sins, all of them, are already forgiven. Matter of fact, he said this in 1 John 1 verse 9. He said this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. 
Children need to know this. It is for His name's sake, not because you were righteous or perfect or godly or religious. No, your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. Children need to be reminded of that. It's interesting, in Matthew 18, Jesus calls a little child to Him as a living illustration of what this faith looks like. It says this in Matthew 18, verse 2, Jesus called a little child to Him and placed the child among them. He placed this child among men. Okay, His disciples and religious leaders of His day. And He said, listen to what He says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, what does that look like? What does becoming a little child for, the, for faith and forgiveness look like? Well, it looks like what John said in John chapter 1, verse 12. It says this, To all who did receive Him. Okay, what is receiving? What, what does receiving look like? John's going to tell you. To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name. See, receiving Jesus Christ is not simply saying a rote, repeated prayer. Receiving Jesus Christ is believing what Jesus has said about Himself. It's believing His claims. To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become, you know this verse, what does it say? Children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, like all human children, but of God, new birth, spiritual children. So children of Highlands Baptist Church, your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. It's that simple. Second, you know the Father. That's what John says. Perfect tense again. You already know Him because of this salvation. New birth resulting in childhood. That's the result of being forgiven. Freed from the slavery of sin. No longer slaves. As, as Galatians 4 would say. No longer a slave to sin. But a son of the Father. From slaves to sons. From enemies to children. And that's what we know. When we are born again. We know God's intimate fatherhood over us. Therefore, we cry out, and it's a beautiful term, it's an Aramaic term used in Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6, and it's a term that conveys intimacy and closeness. Those who are forgiven can cry out what? Abba, Father. It, it, it's the picture of a child who knows the loving affection and attention and closeness of a dad. That's the unique Christian response that we have. So if you are a new believer, little children take confidence in this simple assurance John provides in verses 12 and 13. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. Right? Not what the false teachers are telling you. They are forgiven. And I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Now he's going to give a word from a Torah believers. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. And we'll look at the first part of verse 13 and the first part of verse 14. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Look at verse 14, first part. 
I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. There's no difference. He says the same thing twice. And again, the word fathers does not exclude mothers or women, but includes all those who are mature in the faith. And both times to the mature in faith, he says this, I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. Now, we saw that used with children. Do you remember that? I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. And the second thing he says is what? Because you, you know him, you know the father. What does he add to the mature believers? He adds a phrase that wasn't there with the children. I am writing to you. Here's the addition. Because you know him who is from the beginning. What does that mean? Because he adds it to the mature and he says it twice. Well, it could possibly refer to a theme that is important to John, and that is Christ's preexistence. He'll say this in John 1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And in verse 14, he identifies this Word, this Lagos, as Jesus Christ. He's actually going to repeat that theme in the very beginning of this letter we're looking at, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning could be Genesis then, right? Because it's similar wording. But then he goes on, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, maybe still Genesis, which we have seen with our eyes, okay, it can't be Genesis anymore, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, and now he's going to remove the mystery concerning the word of life, the Logos. It could be that the mature in the church understand Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God, the pre-existent second person of the Godhead. But it could also mean this. It could refer to those who are spiritually mature, that have come to know God as the one who is from the beginning, meaning he is unchangeable and eternal. And that then would provide stability and an anchor through what they're experiencing. What are they experiencing? The changeability of humans. The betrayal of humanity. The the fluctuations of, of people within the church that turn and become heretics and begin to falsely teach things. Mature believers who have endured a lot of disappointment and hurt learn to find their true refuge in in him who is from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 90 verse one says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Think about what 2020 has thrown your way. Those mature in the faith should have a stability and an anchor to not be taken off guard and become fearful. To become panicky. Why? Because they know the one who's from the beginning. And they know that he's just as active today, a very present help in trouble. And he already knows eternity future. They know him who is from the beginning. So if you are a mature believer here at Highlands, take confidence in this simple assurance John provides. I am writing to you fathers and all mature spiritually people because you know him who is from the beginning. That means nothing can shake you today. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. 
So a word to our mature in Christ. How have your reactions this year? How have your how has your example and your reactions to a unique year been an example to little children watching you? To young believers watching you? To those new in the faith saying, how are they going to respond? Do they really believe that God is in complete control? That He is the God from everlasting to everlasting? I am writing to you mature believers because you know Him who is from the beginning. Example that to those new in the faith. Finally, he gives words for those growing in the faith. This is the third category. And we're going to find this in the middle of verse 13 and the middle of verse 14. Let me read this to you. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Okay, it's completed action. I write to you, young men, verse 14, because you are strong. Okay, what's the source of their strength? The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This refers to growing Christians, maturing Christians, both men and women. They're not babes in Christ. They're not little children, but neither are they fathers and mothers of the faith yet either. They're right there, probably the largest category that we have. And so I believe John then saves this and he says this last because it hits the most people. What John does here is he reminds us that the Christian life is more than just relishing in the forgiveness of our sins for his name's sake, but it involves an evil one that must be overcome in a present conflict. Twice John says you have overcome the evil one, but listen, he doesn't say you need to fight and resist, though other places in Scripture teach that. He simply says you are strong and you have already overcome the evil one, and they are strong because of this truth, the Word of God abides in them. It's the same exact thing that that Jesus prays to the Father in John 17, sanctify them through your truth, your Word is truth. These are the people that are being set apart and growing Because of the word of God. Psalm 119, the psalmist asks the question and then answers it. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? Here's the answer. By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What John may be doing is commending this young group of people for not following the false teachers, but actually testing the spirit of their teaching. He'll, he'll say this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And rather than following these influential false teachers, they adhered to God's word and remained in the church. Again, six messages, all perfect tense, which has a present consequence of a past event. And, and it's, kind of, it's beautiful because what is happening is, is John is celebrating the Christian life as an accomplished fact already. Which begs the question, is there no battle for us to face then right now if it's all past, completed, Look at the next verse. Here are words for everyone. Look at verse 15. Present 
imperative, which means it's a command to be obeyed right now. Six, six perfect tenses. It's completed. And he comes out and he says, now, do not keep loving the world. Or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, if you go to a Christian camp or attend an evangelistic meeting, this is where the sermon would have started. Because this sermon provides a nice springboard to sort of leap off and denounce and condemn all kinds of things. I mean, lists of hundreds and thousands of things. But John does not start there. John started by his affirmations to little children to mature believers, and to growing believers. And after stating the beautiful fact of the gospel and of our knowledge of God, then, only then, he says, now listen, stop loving the world. Let's understand a key word in this section. The word world is used six times by John. Dodd, in his commentary, states this. Sometimes John simply means the universe when he talks about the world. As in John 1.10, he was in the world and the world was made through him. Okay, is that what we're not supposed to love? Or, he says, he means life on earth, as John 3.17 says, if anyone has the world's goods. Or 1 John 4.17, as he is, as Christ is, so also are we in this world. Is that the world we're not supposed to love? Or, he says, John uses the world in this way, referring to the life of human society as organized under the power of evil. Well, it certainly has to mean that, because if you compare that and press it up against John 3.16, where it says, for God so loved the world, and yet we're supposed to not only love our brothers and sisters, one of the marks of assurances of faith, but we're even supposed to love who? Our our enemies, it can't mean either of those things. We are placed here. We have dominion over this planet. We're to steward it well. It can't mean we're not supposed to love what you see out there. It has to mean the evil system that opposes God and His Word. That's the usage. It represents the unredeemed world, a world under the control of Satan. Let me read you a few verses and then I'll sort of paraphrase what he means. First John, or John chapter 5, verse 19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. A world system working in rebellion and opposition to God. John 12, 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And then in John 14, 30, Jesus says this, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Here's what John is saying. We should not love the rebellion that stands in aggressive opposition to God. Or we should not be seduced by the world's system that stands against God. Or we should not be infatuated with worldly ungodliness. Okay, those, are, those are general broad terms. So what does he mean by that? Well, John is going to provide three descriptions or three marks of things that must not be loved. So what John is going to do, he's going to draw a line in the sand. 
And he's going to place a boundary between this sphere of the world, a world system, and the sphere of the church. So look at verse 16. Here are the three marks. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. What are these things that we're not supposed to love? The desires of the flesh are the cravings of our sinful flesh. We, we might call this an assault from within, from an internal traitor that is organized and operating 24-7 against you. That means when you're all alone in a room and you place your head down on a pillow, there is an internal traitor trying to get you to obey the desires of your flesh. Anything from within us that draws us away from God. I mean, Jesus even warned his own disciples in Matthew 26, verse 41. He said this, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. There they are with Jesus in a garden among themselves at this moment. And they were supposed to be praying. And yet there was something operating from within an internal traitor that could pull them away from God. So Jesus says, the spirit indeed is willing, but but what? The flesh is weak. That's the desires of the flesh. Anything from within that pulls us away from God. But then he, then he goes on and he gives a second mark. The desires of the eyes. This moves from internal to external. It's something that can be seen or adored. These are the temptations that assault us from without. And then the earliest example of this, and an example that is often used, is that of Eve. Listen to what Genesis 3 verse 6 says. So when the woman saw... Now remember at this point, this was pre-sin. There was no indwelling sin. There was no fallen flesh in Eve. This is, some, this is something merely external to her. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And that it was a delight to the eyes. Achan, many of you know the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7 where the Lord commanded them, you're going to go in, but you're not going to take anything of their spoil. Achan finally confesses to Joshua in, jo- in Joshua chapter 7 verse 20 to 21. It says this, And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. You want to hear his confession? When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. That's what the world wants to do. It wants to capture our affections, our attention by its external appearance. Take an inventory of your life. What is pulling your gaze towards it to make you discontent or to satisfy it in a wrong way. Mainstream media, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, HBO, or some other constant streaming through your eyes. The influence of godless friends who are making their values everything that can be seen and touched and adored. And so often, this is what we do. We look and we grab like a child on the candy aisle. You remember Why do they put the candy there anyway? It's right there. So before you even know it, they have it in their hands. We are so much like children. We see it and we grab it without realizing the consequence. 
What's the consequence of Eve taking the fruit? The curse? What was the consequence of Achan taking what he did? The premature death of his family? Don't love these things. Don't love the desires of the eyes. And then finally, the pride of life. I mean, and quickly, quickly defined, this is the sinful bragging and self-dependence on what one has and does. It is a person's arrogance in his external circumstances, whether that be wealth or security or success or rank or ability or appearance. It is this overconfidence and affluence that makes a person say this, God, I don't really need you. God, I really don't have to depend on you for anything, let alone the next breath I take. I really don't need you. Do not love these things to the point that they move you away from God. And John's not just going to leave it at that. He's going to give you two motivations. And this is the conclusion. He gives two motivations. A relational motivation and, a bigger word, an eschatological sort of future motivation. Let's look at the first one. The relational motivation is this. Fellowship is fractured. For these do not spring from the Father, from whom James says comes every good and perfect gift. Look at verse 16, 1 John 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, everything he just mentioned, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it is from this world system acting in aggressive opposition to God. If we are taken up with their mindset, their values, their pursuits, of the world that rejects Christ, we compromise the sweet fellowship we can have with Him. Matter of fact, James 4.4 4 says it this way, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And of course, Jesus' memorable teaching in Matthew 6, verse 24, No one, no exceptions, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, and this is what it is, it's an issue of love, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. That's the relational reason. We do not love the world because we love the Father. Secondly, an eschatological reason, and that is this, that the present age is doomed to discontinue. Look at verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the choice is this. What will I love this morning? Will I love that which is passing and transient? Or will I love that which is eternal and lasting? Will I love the world? Or will I love the Father? And the, the, the spiritually mature live in the light of this reality, this eschatological motivation, because, remember, he said it twice, because you know him who is from the beginning. They know Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So the mature are exampling that mindset to the young men and to the little children. Second Corinthians 4.16 says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, there's the eyes. What do we look at? As we look not to the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I'm going to invite our music team forward, if I could still ask for your attention while they get in place. One of my favorite writers of our generation is David Wells. David Wells explained how the church has created a weightless God. Okay, a weightless. Not that he truly is a God without gravity, but that the, the God that the, the church is presenting to people is weightless. Listen to his comments in this regard. He said, it is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world as inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. That means his importance, his noticeability. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. And his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. According to Wells, the church is in trouble, but doesn't even know it. Because it has failed to identify the corrupting influences of the world. And it has failed to put upon itself boundaries. And it has failed to preach the whole counsel of God. Examine your life in the light of God's love and forgiveness and greatness. And know this, little children, new believers, your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. And you know the Father. You're children of His. And know this mature believer that you know Him who is from the beginning. There is no need for you to be rattled or, or any cause of instability in your life. And you're supposed to example that faith because you have an eternal perspective. And those growing in the faith, let God's Word abide in you. Let it dwell in you richly. For you are strong. You've already overcome the evil one. And to everybody, do not love the world. For those who love the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Let's pray.